So today we're going to change our direction a little bit. Um, up until now we've been focusing primarily on the creation myths, both the Greek creation myths and the Theogony and the Works and Days, as well as the Homeric Hymns, um, as well as all of those other cultures that we ran into, like the Babylonians Illuminate Enuma Elish, or the Egyptian Coffin or Hymn to Life, or the Genesis 1 to 3 from the Israelite Bible. Um, we've been focusing on all these myths, and they are super duper important, and that's why I wanted to start with them. But now I wanted to shift gears. Um, where we've been focusing primarily on comparative myth and sort of the content of the myth and the understanding of how the myth works. For the next couple weeks and the next several lectures, um, I want to instead focus on the actual historical underpinnings of these myths. Um, I want to talk about the cultures that these myths apply to and inform, um, because up until now we really haven't discussed that all that much. Uh, so for the next two weeks, we're going to look at the Greek civilization, and we're going to look at the Israelites, and we're going to look at the Romans, and we're going to talk about how their myths inform their identity. So this is, in a very real sense, us switching from the discussion of creation myths, primarily through the lens of comparative mythology and, like, some other analytical methods, to now looking at it from a more historically-minded perspective. Um, what do these myths say about how these cultures identify and understand themselves? Um, and logically, we're going to start with the Greeks, like we did last time. Um, so for our first week, we're going to divide into the whole Greek understanding and identity into two halves. Um, today we're going to talk about the Greek city-states. Um, the Greeks as a sort of disunified, loosely affiliated group of people um, who mostly reside in different particular locations, each location of which has its own rich history and its own rich narrative of how it came to be and how it fits into the universe. Um, specifically, we're going to look at the three most important city-states of the Greek world, um, Sparta, Athens, and Thebes. Um, now, Sparta isn't as rooted in myth as Athens and Thebes are, um, and Thebes I'm primarily including as an opportunity to look at the very rich Theban mythological tradition uh, talking about their origins, um, which is, you know, why there was so much on Thebes. Um, but before we get into the actual myth-making, a couple of caveats here. Um, first off, we are now switching primarily from our, like, foundational bedrock texts like Hesiod and Homer um, to the Library of Apollodorus. Uh, almost all of the reading today was from the Library of Apollodorus. Um, obviously, there are excerpts from the library all over our textbook. Um, and they're really convenient from my perspective because Apollodorus is really concise. Um, unlike Hesiod, who is very much coining these myths, or at least like telling them in a way that is new and important and will become this foundational perspective for the Greeks, Apollodorus is sitting on the other end of Greek history. He is actually like a writer in, I want to say, AD 100 or so. Um, so, you know, six like 900 years after Hesiod is likely writing, um, and several hundred years after the pinnacle of the Greek civilization, um, which we'll talk about today. Um, suffice it to say that Apollodorus is actually informed by the Roman tradition as much as he is informed by the Greek tradition, but he is doing his homework, and that's what's important about Apollodorus. 
unlike Hesiod or Homer, who really is, uh, who really are just sort of like creating these myths from whole cloth and sort of supplying an interpretation that's going to radically inform the culture going forward, Apollodorus is literally just collecting. Um, he is like the Brothers Grimm. Uh, he is looking at old stories that have been told a whole bunch of times. He is trying to collect them in as comprehensive a way as possible um, and presenting them as a sort of scholarly pursuit, which is why he doesn't have any problem saying, you know, some people say that this happened while some other people say that this happened. So, for example, in the whole story of Thebes, he mentions Tiresias, um, how nobody knows why Tiresias is blind. And he gives like four different versions of the story of why Tiresias was blind. Um, because again, he's not interested in sort of shaping or sculpting his culture so much as he is restoring and preserving um, the myths as he has heard them. Which itself means we're reading these from a historical perspective. That's what Apollodorus is doing. Um, the downside, however, of reading Apollodorus as concise as he is, is that he's also so rapid fire and he has no sense of what will, like, actually endure as far as the myths are concerned. Like, Hesiod and Homer are important precisely because everybody reads them and therefore every tiny little piece of Hesiod and Homer ends up resonating through Greek culture and through, you know, Western culture generally. Apollodorus doesn't care if it's an important myth or a trivial myth, if it's an important figure or a trivial figure. Heck, he can't even keep his antecedents straight. Like, it's frequently unclear, you know, whether he, in the story of Theseus, refers to Aegeus, Theseus's father, or Minos, the guy who's trying to invade uh, Athens. Like, it's a mess. Um, and as a result, I will absolutely admit that Apollodorus is a tough read. Tougher than Hesiod, tougher than Homer. Um, and me giving you these long passages of Apollodorus just, like, dumping information on you, I realize that's tough. Um, in this reading, and in the next reading, and in future readings with Apollodorus, which there will be quite a few, um, my rule of thumb is, again, don't get bogged down in the details. There are going to be tons of characters and tons of familial relationships and tons of little weird details that don't seem to go anywhere. Um, it's very easy to lose the forest for the trees um, in Apollodorus. So when in doubt, stick to the characters who keep coming back. Track the major players. Um, for today, that was primarily Theseus as well as the Theban kings like Oedipus, Polynices, um, Creon as well as Tiresias the Sage and Dionysus, who plays obviously a very major role in Thebes's sort of generation. Um, but we'll get back to that. It will get clearer. Um, the next reading is also Apollodorus, but it is a much more sustained narrative because he's we're just going to basically read the Trojan War. Um, everything that happens in the Iliad and the Odyssey, Apollodorus will summarize quite neatly and concisely for us. Um, in the coming weeks, we will also be using Apollodorus to read about heroes, so we're going to read his account of Jason and the Argonauts, and we're going to read his account of Heracles. Those are also pretty straightforward by contrast, because, you know, you've got this central hero, Jason, or Heracles, or Perseus, um, and he's just sort of tracking what they do. So don't get bogged down in the politics, don't get bogged down in, like, kingships and feuds and stuff. Focus on the main characters, and we'll see where it goes. Um, now... 
as much as I do want to talk about Apollodorus and the stories of Thebes and everything that's going on with Theseus, um, there's a lot to cover here, and I actually want to sort of broaden our perspective on this one, because I want to talk about the, the history history, and not just the mythic history. Um, so what I would normally do in a classroom setting, and what I will probably do when we in fact meet in person, if we do, because again, I expect many different classes will be listening to this over the course of time um i want you to turn your attention to the powerpoint that i have presented um on canvas it's listed as uh greek history powerpoint or dot ppt um greek history one dot ppt possibly if i've like changed it or something um it's just a few slides but i think it'll be helpful as guidance as we sort of walk through how greek history actually works um, so the first slide that is, you know, relevant to us is the ancient Greek timeline. Um, and this is just, you know, a timeline that I found online that I found especially helpful. Um, but I want it to sort of give us some context for what we're dealing with when I talk about ancient Greece. Um, cause so far, like, I have not spent a lot of time differentiating between the different periods of ancient Greek society, um, besides talking about, like, old, old Greece when the Mycenaeans and the Minoans are hanging around, um, as well as more modern Greece, like when Plato and Aristotle and the writers like Sophocles are hanging around. Um, so I want to start by clarifying that. So you'll notice on this ancient Greek timeline, there's sort of two main sections divided by that little purple block that's marked the Dark Ages. Um, I want to start at the far left. The three civilizations that we're dealing with um, in when we talk about ancient Greece uh, in like the earliest stages of its development are the Cycladic, the Minoan, and the Mycenaean. Um, and you'll notice that on the little map that goes along with it, which is super duper convenient for our purposes, they're marked quite nicely. Um, so in the little map at the farthest left, you can see that you've got the Mycenaeans hanging out on mainland Greece, the, Cycladic, the Cyclades hanging out on a lot of the little islands between Greece proper and Asia Minor, and then of course the Minoans on Crete, which should come as no surprise to anyone King Minos hails from Crete. This is a major part of the way that the Greeks identify their various cultures. Um, Crete is sort of central to Greek culture, but it is central because it is an antagonist, an invader. Um, and you'll notice, like, as soon as you get to the next map, the Minoans are actually disappeared at this point. Now it's a matter of city-states um, versus, like, the, um, the tribal like western greek society um when i talk about the different greek cultures bouncing into each other this is kind of what i'm referring to um these myths have multiple origin points they are not one continuous tradition passed down generation to generation for like thousands of years they have sort of been fused together from the various traditions that are bumping into each other in in greece um so on the one hand, you have the Minoans coming in from Crete and invading the Mycenaean and Cycladic civilizations. On the other hand, as I've mentioned before, we have like the Aryan or Indo-European influences from the north that are sort of coming in and changing things around. Um, it's very difficult for us as anthropologists, as students of myth, to separate exactly what 
comes from each tradition. Um, like you can identify a lot of what came from the Indo-European tradition because it has a lot of similarities with other Indo-European affected civilizations. Um, Zeus, for example, is a pretty prototypical example of a sky god. He throws thunderbolts. He's king of the gods. This has a lot in common with a lot of other gods with similar names and similar identities all the way as far east as India and other nations in between. Um, likewise, when I talked about Poseidon, I mentioned that Poseidon is probably the product of multiple traditions bumping into each other. On the one hand, you have the classic Aryan or Indo-European sea god, but now he's been combined with whatever the horse god was, and that's kind of weird and doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense, and is likely the product of the Minoans and the Indo-Europeans bumping into and intermixing with the Mycenaeans hanging out in Greece to begin with. Um... But this is all really ancient. Like, when all of these cultures that we're talking about are prehistoric for our purposes. Like, there may be an oral tradition that has been passed down and influences Hesiod, Homer, and the other traditions that we're talking about here. There's certainly archaeological evidence that they've been hanging around doing stuff. But for our purposes, this is way before even Hesiod and Homer. Like, way before. The latest stages of Minoan and Mycenaean civilization are still hundreds of years before Homer and Hesiod will set pen to paper and sort of codify the myths as we have them today. Um, and a large reason why that is the case is because that little purple block that I mentioned, the Greek Dark Ages, um, this is sort of deceptive. I know that when we talk about the Dark Ages, we usually think of, like, that period A.D. when the Roman Empire has fallen, but it's not quite the medieval period yet, and as a result, there's just all this, like, barbaric fighting happening uh, in Western Europe. This is not the Dark Ages we're referring to. Um, one of the strangest parts about studying ancient history um, is that virtually all of the major civilizations that you deal with in the study of ancient history, the Greeks, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, um, they all vanish, like, very abruptly, out of nowhere, around 1100 BCE. Um, like, they just, they're just gone. They, they stop. The major cities collapse. The major civilizations stop. Like, writing is lost for a good few hundred years. Um, and so there are written records that the Mycenaeans and Minoans and um, the Babylonians and the Hittites leave us, but then they're just gone, like, out of nowhere. Um, this is frequently known as the Bronze Age Collapse, and we still don't know why it happened. Like, the the key sort of quality that defines this dark age of the ancient world is that they forgot how to write or they lost the ability to write or we, we don't even know like there's just no writing coming out of this sort of two three hundred year period um additionally a lot of the technology is lost um, like, to this day, they, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Hittites, like pre-Dark Age, had ways of developing bronze that we have not been able to recreate, even with all of our fancy modern science. Um, that whole period is largely lost to us. Much of it is just missing. Um, 
And this is, this is what is referred to on the timeline as the Dark Age. This is the Bronze Age collapse. Um, it has been hypothesized that it's because of like invaders from the East who sort of broke up all of these ancient uh, cities and cultures. It has been hypothesized that it could be a giant plague that swept through and just like reduced the infrastructure of the ancient world to nothing. Um, nobody knows. Like grand mystery that archaeology and science has been completely unable to solve and we you know students of the humanities haven't been able to help much either because again not much was written during this period um so let's sort of provisionally call everything that happened before the dark or before this dark age before the bronze age collapse as like proto-greek civilization um it's not really what we're dealing with here um the one thing that we will in fact be spending a good bit of time discussing in this class that happened prior to this dark age is the trojan war um the hypothesis like if you just scroll down to that next page um for a moment because we'll be jumping back to that earlier one um, the Trojan War, we suspect, happened around 1200 BCE, though we're not entirely clear about when it happened. Um, we'll come back to that next time when we talk about the Trojan War. Um, but if you scroll back up to our original timeline, like that places it well before the Bronze Age collapse, like a good solid century before. Um, and that's a fairly generous estimate. It could have happened earlier. It could have happened a little bit later. We really don't know. Um, what we do know that the Trojan War did in fact go down. Like all of the suggestions, archaeological and otherwise, are that there was in fact a conflict between the Mycenaean Greeks and the the people of Asia Minor. Um, like this is likely a thing that did in fact happen. The evidence seems to support it. Um, but it's not 100% clear because a lot of the evidence was damaged in the excavation. This is me putting it nicely. We'll again come back to that. Um, but also because, again, the myth that we have is kind of bound up with the history here. Um, we interpret the historical data through the myth in many cases because the myth is one of the best sources we have for how and why this conflict occurred. Um, so dividing what is like actually the case, what actually happened from how it is reported by Homer, um, it is a bit of a difficult ask. Again, because so much time of like between the Trojan War and the actual records that we have is like empty, um, is part of this Bronze Age collapse. Um, so we will talk about the Trojan War, but we aren't going to be talking about the Trojan War from the perspective of the Mycenaeans, so much as we are going to talk about the Trojan War as it, it's a major historical occurrence um, in the consciousness of the ancient Greeks, um, the archaic Greeks, as they're put on our initial timeline here. Um, and you'll notice that the archaic period ranges from about 800 BCE to 500 BCE. Like, this is the recovery after the Bronze Age collapse. Um, and this is the period when most of our major writers are writing. 
Um, Hesiod and Homer both date back to somewhere in the vicinity of 700 to 800 BCE, or rather 800 to 700 BCE. Um, they are both so ancient that we cannot identify them, like there aren't any corroborating sources. We don't have a rich cultural tradition at that point because we're still like recovering from the effects of whatever went down during the Bronze Age collapse. Um, but they're still giving us some information. They're just isolated. Like most of the texts from this period, if there were other texts during this period, are lost. Um, in fact, it's suspected that Homer is actually working with a much more ancient tradition that, you know, the story of the Trojan War, the Trojan War cycle was actually like this big four volume epic that like spanned the whole beginning of the war and then the period that Homer talks about, as well as the end of the war when like Troy is actually destroyed. And then again, there's like this whole cycle that deals with the homecoming of which the Odyssey is only just one small part. Um, but that's largely speculation. Like, we don't have any of those texts. They weren't committed to writing, or if they were, those texts have been lost. Um, at any rate, this archaic period is sort of when these originary myths that we have today are coming into the form that we know them. Um, so again, Hesiod is putting together his theogony, so now he is taking all of these disparate traditions and combining them together into one sustained narrative of how the gods came to be. Um, Homer is taking the various traditions of the Trojan War and bringing them together into the Odyssey and the Iliad, these poems that are going to endure for thousands of years. Um, again this archaic period probably has a lot of different traditions that are bouncing around um it's probably not just hesiod and homer who are writing and collecting these ideas who are sort of processing them and making the traditions that we know today um but they're the ones that survived for whatever reason now the period that we're actually going to be focused on the most like the period that sort of defines ancient greece in our consciousness um, is on the one hand the classical period and on the other hand the Hellenistic period. The Hellenistic we're going to come back to. Uh, the classical period is what's largely considered to be the golden age of ancient Greece and of Athens especially. Um, most of the conflicts we're going to talk about today and we're going to talk about in the next lecture um, are going to very much refer to this classical period. Um, this is when Greek culture is at its height. And again, Athenian culture is sort of like the definitive version of this. Um, this is when all the great philosophers like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle are writing, as well as their forebears like Parmenides and Democritus. Um, this is when the great playwrights like Sophocles, this is when all of the great like mainstays of Greek history, um, this is when Herodotus is writing. Um, this is when Themistocles lives and dies. This is when Pericles founds the great civilization and sort of like sets Athenian democracy into motion. Um, tons of cool stuff happens during the classical period. And we are largely going to be approaching the myths from this classical perspective. Like this is, this is the moment in history that I want to guide you into. Um, but notice that, again, this is a tradition. 
Um, the classical writers who are talking about Homer and reinterpreting him, the the ancient quote writers who are themselves sort of working with an even more ancient tradition, um, they're like th getting this stuff third hand. Like when Sophocles is going to tell us the story of Oedipus Rex later on, way later in this class. Um, he's going to be writing in the 4th and 5th century BCE about stories that have been told primarily in the Archaic period, somewhere between uh, 800 and 500 BCE, about events that occurred before the Bronze Age collapse and what is likely like 1300 to 1100 BCE. Um, these are... 800-year-old stories at the time that these ancient classical writers are putting them down. Um, that's what I want to stress here. Like, this is not, you know, a mythic tradition that was invented and flourished in this period. This is not like Harry Potter being written by J.K. Rowling in the 90s and 2000s and then being like filmed in that same period and thus like codifying the entire tradition in a matter of 20 years. Um, this is way more like, you know, stories about Christian saints that you get in church today or, to, or you know, recently um, that were actually things that happened hundreds of years ago um, and things that if they happened, happened hundreds of years ago. Um, there's, in short, a lot of question marks going on here. Um, like, when Plato tells the story of the Protagoras, when he tells the story of, like, Prometheus and Epimetheus giving gifts to different people, and Epimetheus, like, giving all the powers to the animals, but Prometheus giving fire and uh, practical wisdom to humans, he is basically in this classical period in 400 to 300 BCE rewriting a myth that Hesiod told in 800 to 600 BCE that is set so many years ago that nobody remembers like in the earliest stages of human life this is a tradition that has been passed down for 500 years before Hesiod gets it, at which point it's passed down another 500 years when Plato modifies it. Um, and thus, this is really ancient stuff that we're dealing with. It's ancient even to the writers who we consider ancient. Um, that's what I really want to drive home here. Like, if you take nothing away from my sort of wandering and ill-informed discussion of how Greek history works... What I want to emphasize is these myths were old when they were put down by the people who were writing them. Um, especially when we're reading Apollodorus, who again is writing another five or six hundred years after this classical period. Um, so again, I'm trying to get us into the mindset of the classical period. This is sort of the height of Greek culture. This is where all the really important changes happen. This is where sort of like what will become the Western perspective is being developed. Um, so this is the mindset that I'm trying to get us into. This is the historical moment that is most significant to our discussion. Um, now, 
it is going to continue. Like, in the coming weeks, we're going to talk about sort of where it goes from here. Um, specifically, we're going to talk about Hellenism and Alexander the Great bringing Greek culture throughout all of the ancient world. We're going to talk about the Roman Empire and exactly what influence it has both on these myths, but also uh, what influences it as a result of these myths. And we're not going to get much further than the Roman Empire. Like, I want to sort of track the Roman Empire to its conclusion. Um, but we aren't going to get into, like, the Byzantine Greek period or the Ottoman rule in the 15th century um, as much as this timeline wants to stress that. Um, like, that's another conversation for another day, but it's well out of our purview. Um, but suffice it to say that, like, the other thing I want to emphasize is exactly the scope of the history that we're dealing with here. Um, like, if we sort of generously assume that this timeline from the Cycladic period through the Minoans and the Mycenaeans, into the Bronze Age collapse, into the Archaic and Classical Greeks, and on, extends all the way to today, we're looking at like a 5,000 year spread here. Um, like, to put this in context, we are closer to, you know, like, Charlemagne and the medieval knights of Europe um, than the medieval knights of Europe and Charlemagne were to Aristotle and Plato and so on. Like, we're talking about a huge amount of history here. Um, everything that we're talking about as far as, like, the great Greek writers, um, Sophocles and, um, Euripides and Plato, and Aristotle, and Herodotus, and Euclid, and, like, the major players involved in sort of setting down Greek culture, like, that's 2,500 years ago. Um, that's a long, long time ago that this is sort of being set down. And in addition to that being 2,500 years ago, that was 2,500 years ago that people were talking about stuff from a 1,000 years before. Um... These stories that we're talking about today, especially things like Theseus or Oedipus and uh, Tiresias um, of Cadmus and the founding of Thebes in its sort of original form, um, that's forever ago. That's long even by the standards of Sparta and Athens um, as they're presented in the Peloponnesian War. Um, so let's go ahead and sort of change our perspective to this second timeline, the one from Khan Academy. Like, thank you, Khan Academy, for, for helping us out with this one. Um, so you'll notice, like, to give you this sort of scope of what exactly is happening in ancient Greece, um, so we have the Mycenaean Greeks um, and the Minoan Greeks and all of that influence in, like, the distant past, 1300, 1200, 1100 BCE. We have the Dark Age collapse in 1100 that, yield, that le leads to 800. Notice how exciting things get after that, during the Archaic and Classical period. So we see the establishment of the Oracle at Delphi around 800 somewhere. We see the beginning of the Olympic Games being presented, like, around 800 BCE. We have the writing of the Iliad and the Odyssey, the writing of the Theogony and the Works of Days, all somewhere in the 800 to 700 period. Um, all of this is very old, even from the perspective of the ancients. Um, now the stuff that we're going to talk about as far as like Athens and Sparta and the Peloponnesian War, um, 
or rather the uh, Greco-Persian Wars before the Peloponnesian War, this is all stuff happening between 500 and 400 BCE. So this is like two, three hundred years after the Iliad and the Odyssey was written, which was itself five hundred years after the Trojan War actually went down. Um, so already Greek culture is ancient at this point. Um, this is the difference between, like, uh, you know, us talking about World War II as compared to the Hundred Years' War of the 15th century. Um, like, Joan of Arc and, you know, her getting burned at the stake. That was as far, like, in the our past as the Trojan War would have been to Homer himself. Um, this is the scope that we're dealing with here. Um, so keep this in mind, like, we're going to be sort of compacting a lot of history here, um, and we're going to be talking about these various different events as though, you know, it's all one culture when it really isn't. Like, we're talking about, you know, the, the, the video that Extra History gives us on the, on the Greco-Persian War. Um, is in that period, between 500 and 400. Um, the Trojan War, which we're going to talk about next time, would have been like 800 years old at this point in time. Um, the ancient period um, that we are talking about specifically is this classical period, 500 to 300. Um, this is the moment that I'm trying to get us in the mindset, but it is a moment that is bracketed on both sides by major events. Um, it is important because of the Greco-Persian War, the Peloponnesian War, um, the great accomplishments of these various writers and artists and philosophers, um, but it is informed by the history of the Archaic period, Hesiod and Homer on the one hand, and the really distant past where we get the stories of Theseus and um, of Oedipus and of the Trojan War like even further back. So I know I'm not doing a very good job. Again, this is sort of a visual idea that is that I'm desperately trying to communicate uh, through the medium of this lecture alone. Um, so hopefully this will make some sort of sense on your end. Um, at any rate, the other thing that I do want to stress, like because again we haven't had the opportunity to sort of talk about the the logistics at this point. Um, is what Greece actually is. So if you can scroll down to the next uh, to the, ne the next slide, um, let's look at the map for a moment. Um, so the first map is this wonderful little National Geographic map of ancient Greece circa 750 BCE. Um, again, 750 means that this is in the time of Homer and Hesiod, not in the time of... Um, Athens and Sparta as extra mytho or extra history talks about them. Um, and the main reason I like this map is because it is simple and straightforward. It gives us all of the major, major, major locations in ancient Greece. Um, so you can see we've got Delphi, Thebes, Athens, Sparta, Corinth, and Mycenae, all the major cities on sort of the Balkan Peninsula. Uh, we have Mount Olympus identified just south of Macedonia, which is really helpful. Like, Mount Olympus was in fact a physical place. People actually regarded that as the home of the gods. This was not something mysterious and otherworldly, like heaven in the Christian tradition. Um, it was a place. 
Um, it was just a mountain that nobody could get on top of. That's why the gods hung out there, to get away from humans. Um, we also have, you'll notice, Crete and Knossos specifically. Knossos is like the capital city of Crete. This is where Minos would have hung out um, before he started antagonizing Theseus. Um, you will also notice in Asia Minor, um, you'll see Troy and Miletus. Um, one of the things that defines the Trojan War is it takes a lot of effort to get there. Um, Agamemnon and his giant fleet would have set out from mainland Greece, Corinth or Mycenae, um, and sailed across the Aegean Sea to get to Troy, um, which is admittedly a coastal city. So once they got there, you know, they just like disembarked from their boats and bam, they could besiege the city. Um, but even so, it's a big journey. The other thing that you should definitely notice is the fact that Greece is this giant archipelago. Um, and the advantage of a topographical map like this one is you can see that even the Balkan Peninsula is just riddled with mountain ranges. Um, this is not easy to traverse. Um, and in fact, most of the Greeks would much rather get in a boat and sail to someplace even as close as like Athens from Corinth than try and cross all of these, this mountainous terrain. Um, to get anywhere, you're going to take a boat. It's, it's just the way that the Greek society works, um, which means sacrificing to Poseidon, which means taking your life in your hands, which means going on an adventure that could probably blow you off course and probably get you stuck on an island where you didn't intend to go, which, if you were a proper Greek army with all of the outfittings, means you're probably going to, like, rape and pillage the place before you move on to wherever your destination is. Any journey of any size in this world is going to involve getting sidetracked. Um, so you'll see, like, when we talk about the Trojan War in the next uh, lecture, there are all sorts of hiccups and side trips and distractions and tangents that this adventure goes on. Um, people are constantly getting blown off course, and they'll just, like, sack the place, take all their stuff, and then, you know, just keep it, because that's how they... That's how they roll. Um, the Greeks, kind of, in this sense, are properly imagined as pirates. Um, like, it is no, ex no overextension of the imagination, no exaggeration, to say that they just, like, wander into places, take all their stuff, and then just, you know, run off with it. Um, this is normal. Uh, and, like, even though we consider these, these people to be sort of the founders of democracy and of civilization, um, at least during this ancient or archaic period, it's pretty wild. Like, everybody just does what they want. Um, the period that we're talking about, that sort of like that we're looking from, even, you know, in, in the days of Sparta and Athens, the days of the Peloponnesian War or the Greco-Persian War, um, these are still times when people are just going to, like, accidentally take over stuff on the way to doing things, though not as much as in the, the days of Troy, um, the ancient past, the archaic past. Um, so, like, that's just a practicality of what the world is like at this point in time. Um, but also notice that, you know, some of these, the, these locations are still kind of close together. Like, it's, it's not... 
it's difficult to get anywhere, but it is not impossible to get anywhere. Um, and especially you'll notice that like Delphi is sort of out in the middle of nowhere off the Gulf of Corinth. Um, remember that everybody goes to Delphi all the time. Like if you want to do anything, you've got to send messengers to the Oracle at Delphi and get a reading on, you know, what Apollo wants you to do in this situation. What is the future going to look like? Um, there is a lot of traffic between these city-states. Um, but, and I want to stress this, because of the terrain, because of the situation, they are very independent. Um, the idea of a nation that is Greece, um, this is a new thing. Like, in our grand scope of messy history, we are not going to get a national Greek identity until after the Greco-Persian War. Like, honestly, the Battle of Thermopylae contributes to that. Um, this idea that, like, Sparta and Athens are allies, share an identity separate from what the Persians threaten, um, that's a new concept to the 4th and 5th century and will very much inform the classical period of Greece. Um, but we'll talk about that more next week. Um, what I want to stress now is that that's not the way that these people see themselves. Um, they see themselves as Athenians, as Thebans, as Spartans, as Corinthians, as Mycenaeans, if at all, if Mycenae like, is still a thing at this point. Um, and to that point, I want to look at the next slide, the next map, which is a lot more complicated and a lot more confusing and messy. Um, and that's what I want to stress here. Um, honestly, I suggest that you refer to this map fairly often in our readings. Like, most of the places that we're going to run into at various points over the course of, you know, this, this class, most of the random islands, most of the random cities, they're actually on this map if you go looking for them. Um, so, for example, you can see our major cities, Athens and Corinth and Sparta, in the same places as we saw them before, um, marked especially for that purpose. But you're also going to see, like, Naxos, the place where that dude with the purple hair came from. Um, you'll see Delos, the island that had the temple that Apollo set up. Um, you will see Cythera, the island that Aphrodite supposedly came from. Um, all of those random places are on this map. Now, this map is a little bit more modern. This was intended more in the classical period rather than, like, the archaic period. Um, the last map was circa 750. This probably is closer to 500 or thereabouts. Um, but keep in mind that, like, this is a little bit more informed about, like, what the Greek world actually looks like. Every one of these tiny, stupid little islands has a history. Um, and most of our myths tie to them in some way. You've got the island of Patmos, you've got the island of Lesbos, you've got the island of Lemnos. Um, these are all islands that are going to feature prominently at various points in various myths. Um, you can track the progress of Odysseus or the progress of Jason and the Argonauts, um, even if it doesn't seem to actually make all that much sense. Um, like, it's a lot of looping and backtracking because, again, like, these ships are not terribly powerful and you can't necessarily get where you're going, especially if there's a storm on. Um, but keep in mind, like, these are real places. The Greeks identify their myths as being locational. Um, that's what I want to stress here. Um, these myths are grounded in real places, in real people. 
Um, as much as, you know, I have been stressing to this point that myths, like their, their truth or falsity, is kind of irrelevant to the fact that they are a myth, part of the reason why I wanted to stress that was because there's equal parts, truth and falsehood, in many of these myths. They are founded on real places and real people, but they involve things that science says could not possibly have happened to those people or in those places. Um, and that seems as good a place to segue into the actual like cities that we're going to be focusing on. Um, Sparta, Athens, Thebes. Um, Again, these city-states are isolated. They consider themselves as having their own separate identity. Um, the idea that they are all Greeks is not something that's getting kicked around all that much at this point. Like, Hesiod has brought it up, um, and it will become stronger as these alliances uh, against the Persians sort of, like, take place. Um, but it's going to take Herodotus much later, like in 300 and 200 BCE, to sort of explicitly say, we are one people. We are united. We, in our, dis in our distinctions, in our differences, are, at the end of the day, one common body. The Hellenes, the Greeks. Um, that's an idea that is developing at this point. It is not developed. Instead, there are Athenians, and there are Corinthians, and there are Spartans, and there are um, Thebans, and so on and so forth. Um, which means we have to treat each of these as a separate entity at this point in time. Um, now, this is where we're very much transitioning from like this broad strokes, look at us, we can look at all different parts of history simultaneously, to focusing on this classical period specifically. Um, for our extra history video that was very much grounded in the Greco-Persian War, this moment in the 5th and 4th century BCE. Um, so let's narrow our focus to this 5th and 4th century. Um, it is this time that we're going to sort of understand the culture most often. Um, so let's talk about the three cities that we're looking at today, Sparta, Athens, Thebes. Um, and again, like the extra history video, I want to start with Sparta. So Sparta, like, we probably all have a decent idea of what their deal is. We know that they're heavily militaristic. We know that they are very invested in, like, the society itself being 100% soldiers. Um, extra history does a good job of explaining that, like, they kill off any children who are, you know, deformed or who are who show any sign of weakness um, in order to create their perfect military warrior state. Um, and I, I don't want to like downplay that, but I do sort of want to look at the myths underpinning this. Um, specifically, the Spartans identify their culture as springing from a series of rules um, laid down by one of their historical leaders, Lycurgus, who you'll actually see running around in the myths of Thebes and Athens. Um, like, there is no reference to Lycurgus or, like, the specific founding of Sparta in the chunks of Apollodorus that we read for today, um, largely for reasons that will become clear momentarily. Um, but Sparta also sees its origins as rooted in myth. Um, 
like the rigorous Spartan society that is described here with like this military elite ruling over a giant pile of possibly revolting helots, um, this is founded in an even more ancient tradition. The Spartans see themselves as being inheritors of this first king, Lycurgus. And Lycurgus laid down a whole list of laws, very strict, very rigorous laws that made the Spartan society what they are. Um, importantly, though, Lycurgus, first off, said that he was not going to be the sole leader of Sparta. Um, Lycurgus avoided becoming a tyrant in the Greek sense, a single monarch. Um, instead, he wanted to make sure that the Spartans had two kings at all times. Um, one king who was going to be responsible for the, like, home and everything that's going on at home. So one king located in Sparta proper, but also one king in the field. Um, when the Spartan military is on the move, there's a separate king who runs the Spartan army. And they have equal authority to the Spartan king at home. Um, that's the dual monarchy that is referred to by extra history here. But importantly for Lycurgus, they can never be in the same place at the same time. If you had two kings running the place in Sparta, there would always be a threat of revolt. Um, he knew this. So as a result, the, the secondary Spartan king, the king in the field, can never come home to Sparta unless like summoned there by the original king, at which point you know, he is subservient to that king and only temporarily. Um, otherwise, you know, again, more problems will result. Um, but the other thing that Lycurgus did that is particularly interesting for the Spartan society is he set down his laws but never committed them to pen and paper. And this was deliberate. Um, this is not just an accident of history where it's like we've lost the original laws of Lycurgus or, you know, um, like they were written down once, but, you know, they, they've since been destroyed or whatever. Um, this was intentional on his part, which I know sounds weird to us with our fancy constitution and like all the laws being codified so everyone can read them all the time. Lycurgus specifically wanted the laws to be malleable. Um, he wanted successive generations of Spartans to modify the law according to what they needed at the time um, and for it to still be binding. So he said it will only ever be communicated orally, by which we mean, you know, people could change it and no one would know. Like, obviously, if you changed it a lot, everyone would cry foul. Like, if you changed it radically from the way that it was just a matter of, like, weeks or years ago, like, anyone who had heard the law the first time would, sh would scream bloody murder and say that you were, you know, clearly trying to undermine Spartan society. Um, but importantly, if a law wasn't working, people would presumably forget it. Or they would deliberately, like, extirpate it from the the record um the oral passage of tradition of the law and the, the the tradition is necessarily sort of subject to change um things that are more important will become more will be retained or possibly even augmented while pe bits that are now obsolete or unimportant would get forgotten um, that was the intention so spartan society is surprisingly malleable um, or at least it was intended to be. By the time that we're looking at it in, you know, the classical period, 400 to 300 BCE, it's a little bit more structured than that. Like, the Spartans are a little bit more sort of stuck in their traditions um, than they are at the time 
um, that Lycurgus is talking about. It's become calcified. Power structures, as they tend to do, get a little more rigid than is appropriate. Um, which brings us to Athens, which has virtually no rigidity to it. Um, Athens is the first recorded democracy, at least, you know, in Western tradition. Um, and like Extra History stressed, that isn't a straight democracy. This is not like we have now where everybody gets to vote and every vote is counted equally um, for what that's worth. Uh, in this point in time, it would have been a classical democracy. Uh, only the landed men of Athens would have been able to vote. Sorry, ladies. Once again, Athenian society proves to be completely misogynistic. Um, women don't get a vote. If you don't own land, you get a vote or you don't get a vote. Like only basically Athenian nobility gets to vote. Um, and this is one of the things that I want to sort of stress. Um, I want to talk about the Athenian nobility and what like Athenian life actually looked like. Um, because this is kind of the model of Greek life across the board. Sparta being the obvious exception because Spartan life is so rigorous and so methodical and militaristic. Um, the Athenian model of like soldiers and nobles is sort of the same model that was being kicked around at the time of you know Agamemnon and the uh, Iliad or Theseus and the the stories there. Um, this is sort of what I want to stress about like what does it mean to be Greek, like a Greek human being. Um, at this point in history. And the main thing that I want to stress is it is hardcore patriarchal. Um, like, the way that the Greeks see the world, the master of the household, the eldest man of the family, has all of the power. Like, all of the power. Um, and for, honestly, good reason, as far as, like, the societal structure is concerned. Um, the dude, the paterfamilias, the head of the household, um, he is the one who goes to war for you. He is the one, at least in Athens and other democracies, who votes for the interest of the household. He is the one who engages in trade and makes money. Um, in short, like he is the face of your dynasty. Um, every time that your house goes out and does stuff, in the agora, the marketplace, or like in warfare, it's usually this guy who is representing it. And for that reason, he is head of the household. Um, everyone is subservient to him. Um, and when I say this, I mean like big time estates here, something comparable to like southern plantations. Um, one family ruling a wide spread of land, like a whole giant estate, including farms, houses, your, the, the noble house proper, the manor, um, outbuildings like, you know, granaries and stables and stuff like that. All of that is operated by this one family, by this one household. So it basically functions as like a miniature village in its own right. Now, increasingly, as, you know, wealth is sort of concentrated in the cities, you're going to see nobles sort of building their estates inside the confines of the city. Less focus on agriculture, more focus on trade. Um, and if you are a noble who manages to, you know, accomplish these goals, um, you're going to 
have the same kind of vote as someone who runs a farm out in the neighboring countryside. Uh, but this is a relatively recent development. Like, again, classical Greece in its golden age has a place for people who do not, you know, grow food. Nobles who wander around the streets providing other services, like boats or like trade, or, you know, runs a market stall. Um, these people are also regarded as nobles many, many times, or at least as the representatives of nobles. You can build your fortune off of a lot by the time that we're talking about here. Now, in the time of the Trojan War and most of the myths that we're talking about, when I say Athenian noble, you should think they have an estate. They have, like, granaries and they have fields and they have, you know, basically a whole village unto itself. That's what we're going to see with Odysseus in the Odyssey. That's what we're going to see with Agamemnon in the Iliad. That's what we're going to see with Theseus and with basically all of the little kings who are floating around in these myths. Um, but for Athens, that's not necessarily the case, at least in this classical period. Um, you can get rich, you can be noble, you can own land for a variety of reasons and for a variety of services that you can provide. Um, that said, it's still a pretty small minority who actually successfully owns land. Um, like the Extra History video says, probably only 30% of Athenian society had land. Um, the other 70% are basically a combination of middle managers, uh, like people who are responsible for managing the estate but don't actually own any land. Um, these people are respected, keep in mind. These are, these are proper servants, like capital S servants, stewards, um, people who are skilled, people who are knowledgeable, people who are capable and well-respected, but who don't own land and as a result do not get a vote in the Athenian demos. Um, now, that doesn't mean that they're like slaves in any extent of the imagination. Like they live a good life, they get paid, they enjoy a lot of privileges and benefits. Um, you'll notice that when Theseus sort of structures Athenian democracy in the, at the end of the myth of Theseus, um, he separates between like the nobles, the husbandmen, and the skilled laborers. Um, the husbandmen are sort of what we're talking about in this particular case, people who run things. Um, the guy who runs the stables, the guy who runs the house, the guy who you know is responsible for going to the market and buying everything that we need, the guy who you know sails your ship, the guy who um, like manages you know trade agreements between your estate and another like nearby state. Um, all of these people are respected. They are the middle class for all intents and purposes. Um, and then you have your laborers, craftsmen, skilled workers, um, people who worship Hephaestus in short, um, people who do your forging, people who specifically do train the horses, not run the stables, um, people who perform essential services around the city, but don't do it in a managerial or noble capacity. They don't own what they are working with. Instead, they are just working with what you have provided. And again, they're given good wages and good houses and so on and so forth. Many of these are free Athenian citizens, um, if not landowners, which means that they're freemen, not landowners, and thus not citizens. Um, now, in addition, you will also have a decent su supply of slaves who perform, like, the most menial tasks and do the least, like, honorable work. Farmhands, um, people who you basically, for all intents and purposes, own on your estate. 
Um, so in the Athenian society, you have basically your nobles at the top running the estates. You have your middle class and low class freemen um, who serve these nobles, but also do so at wages. Um, and then you have slaves. Um, who are basically just like people you captured in battle, usually women, you typically don't take a whole lot of male slaves unless they're very young, um, who serve you like unconditionally because they are practically owned by you. And that said, there is a fair amount of social mobility here. Um, if you prove to be a good slave, you could be freed and paid for your services, especially if your family has been enslaved to um, a noble family for a very long time. This is pretty pretty likely. This is not slavery like North Atlantic slavery, where you know it's white slave owners beating the shit out of black slaves for no good reason and basically treating them as subhuman. Um, the Greeks recognize a difference between like people who speak their language and barbarians, um, and they generally don't treat barbarians well, but they also don't like abuse them um, in the way that was so common in the American slaveholding societies. Yes, it happened, and again, you'll notice that the Spartans are especially brutal to their slaves, largely because they're in they're so concerned about a potential slave revolt. Um, but the Athenians don't typically do that. The Athenians are very civilized to their slaves. Um, and most slavery in the ancient world follows this model. Like, in the future, the Romans will start taking, like, Greek scholars as slaves to, like, raise their children or to educate local people. Um, and they are treated very well. Like, they're paid in addition to being slaves. Um, they are not free, they cannot like stop working for people, but they enjoy a pretty decent lifestyle despite the fact that they're slaves. Um, so the culture varies pretty wildly as far as where you, your position is um, in society. Again, unless you're a woman. Um, and this is where I kind of want to transition into that. If you were a woman in Greek society, you are basically little better than a slave at all times. Um, again, there is a very obvious double standard between the way that like Greek husbands and Greek wives are expected to behave. Greek wives are expected to manage the household, stay on the noble's estate, never sleep with another man, um, and basically do everything that they do for the good of their household, um, for the good of the noble who is in charge of the estate. By contrast, the noble can do whatever the hell he wants. Um, like, if he wants to bring home concubines that he has captured from, you know, his conquests overseas, he is free to do that. Um, if he wants to sleep with the staff, he is free to do that. Um, in fact, in some ways, he's expected to do that. Um, in classical Greek society, the noble landowning, like, ruler of the household um, was responsible for, like, helping other households as well. One of the ways that they would frequently do this is through the patronage system. Um, so if, for example, you are a Greek noble who is kind of on the outs, like you don't have as much money as you used to, your name isn't quite as respected as it used to be, um, you would typically give your son over to a more respected noble house um, and your son would be raised by this other household. Um, in the idea that like he will learn how to govern an estate, he will learn how to um, 
like perform statecraft, get his voice heard in the demos, basically do everything that a noble is expected to do in a household where that's much more respected and much more like ob obvious and ostentatious. And this would take place in exchange frequently for sexual favors. Um, here it is, folks, as close as we're going to get to a systematic discussion of Greek homosexuality and pederasty. Um, Greeks placed a very high value on beauty. Um, like, they couldn't conceive of an ugly person also being a good person. Um, beauty was considered to be virtue. Like, they're one and the same. It's both an indicator of internal virtue, but also a virtue in its own right. Um, like, I know that we are all trained by Disney movies to know that, like, sometimes the beautiful person is actually a terrible person on the inside. Thank you, Beauty and the Beast, Hunchback of Notre Dame, etc., etc. Like, monsters don't always look like monsters. The Greeks would totally have disagreed with that. Monsters are monsters. They look like monsters and they act like monsters. Um... Therefore, a beautiful young man was highly prized because they were beautiful on the inside and the outside. They were good, heroic, and attractive. Um, and the Greek noble like landowners, the paterfamilias, the head of the household, were usually talking about a man likely in their late 30s to 60s, um, even older if they survived that long. Um, it's pretty rare for a Greek landowner to give up power, though it will happen, especially when they get like to a certain age. They will pass on control of the estate to their sons and just sort of like hang on um, and live there the way that we'll see Laertes, Odysseus's father, do that. Um, but what I want to emphasize is that these are older men who tend to run these estates. Um, and if you have a young son, you typically entrust, it, entrust your young son to these older men for experience teaching wisdom in short in response the old man gets to sleep with the young attractive boy um and this is where we need to talk about the way that the greeks see sex in general because they do not understand sexuality in the same way that we do um, like for us this sounds like all of these elder greek statesmen are gay they're homosexual um to the greeks this is not the case at all um, they, like, these men would have been sleeping with these young boys, yes, they also would have been sleeping with their concubines captured from overseas, their wife, if they had any interest in sleeping in their, with their wife at this point, which they probably don't, um, as well as basically any member of their household who struck their fancy, boys or girls. For the Greeks, there's no such thing as homosexual or heterosexual. Um, people do not get defined based on whether they prefer to sleep with members of the same sex or members of different sexes. Um, that's just not the way it works. Greeks are under, understand sex in terms of whether you are the, let me put this as delicately as I possibly can, whether you are the lover or the beloved. Um, in Greek, this is the difference between erastes and eromenos. Um, the erastes is responsible for giving to the eromenos. The lover bestows upon the beloved. And this is understood in both the sense of like materially or economically as well as like physically. Um, this is 
a pitching catching situation to be a little bit less delicate um Greeks understand your role in a sexual relationship as being either the pitcher or the catcher. Um, you either bestow, you give, or you take, you receive. Um, and it is the responsibility of the head of a Greek household to give um, in both senses. You give your wisdom to the young men of the household. You give security to the women of your household and the slaves and the servants of your household. You give all that you have received and you basically enrich your entire house um, by going out and going to war, by striking good deals, by getting your voice heard in the demos. You amass your wealth to give it to the people who are subservient to you. Your goodness, your responsibility, your power as a citizen is largely measured on your generosity, what you bestow on others. Now, from a sexual perspective, that means that, like, a older Greek man is expected to be a pitcher. Um, they are expected to pitch to their wives, which is, you know, part and parcel of them, like, giving their wives a place to live and a place to stay. They're expected to pitch to their concubines because they're gorgeous and because they want to do that, um, as well as because they're providing their con concubines with safety and a place to stay and so on and so forth. And they're expected to pitch to these young men. Um, your sexual education starts with you being on the receiving end of an older Greek man who gives you wisdom, who gives you knowledge, who gives you authority, who gives you training, and who gives you sexual favors. Um, it is respected to be the recipient of a powerful Greek man's attentions um, to basically, you know, get screwed in our rather, you know, like negative sense um, by someone who is better than you. Um, that's not disrespected. It doesn't have the negative sense we use the term screwed to mean. Um, it does have a slightly negative sense, like you are not grown enough to pitch at this point. You are not grown enough to bestow favors. Instead, you are just the recipient. But there's, like, everybody does this. This is not negative. Um, and yes, let us be clear here, you will be on the receiving end as early as probably 12 or 13. Um, though typically you think of Greek, like the ideal of Greek masculinity to be located more between like 16 to 20. Um, young men are prized. Young men are prized sexually and young men are prized because of their abilities. Um, being, you know, trained as a soldier, being trained as a lord, as a house runner, as a citizen, as like a skilled person is very much bound up with you being attractive to someone else and therefore being, you know, used sexually. Um, now, keep in mind that this doesn't apply to women. Like, again, we tend to think in terms of, are you gay or straight? Are you bisexual? Like, what people do you like to have sex with? Again, the Greeks think everyone is bisexual. 
That's just the default state. Like, they would just scratch their heads if you, you tried to explain the difference between heterosexuality and homosexuality to them. That's just not a system for them. Everybody sleeps with everybody. Um, it just depends on the situation. But for the Greeks, lesbianism is sort of a phenomenon that they're sort of curious about, but they don't really understand. Like, as much as there is a rich tradition of men sleeping with men in Greek culture because of this sort of, like, patronage pederasty system, um, as far as I can tell, like, it's pretty just tolerated and confused about how and why women sleep with women. Um, like, remember, in a Greek household, you've probably got, like, multiple women set aside for, you know, sleeping with. Um, the wife, of course, is expected to sleep with the Lord and nobody else. Um, but the concubines are also hanging around sleeping with the Lord and nobody else. And the maids are probably hanging around sleeping with the Lord and maybe other people, like perhaps their husbands. Um, there's a lot of different sort of sexual dynamics here. And you have to kind of expect that the women are also sleeping with each other at this point in time. Um, it's probably going on behind closed doors that the wife is sleeping with the concubine or the concubines are sleeping with each other or, you know, the maids are sleeping with other maids. Um, the Greeks don't have a problem with this. This is not considered sex. Remember, sexuality is understood in terms of pitching and catching. Therefore, two women cannot have sex with each other as far as the Greeks are concerned. Sure, they can pleasure each other, but that's not sex because nobody is penetrating. Um, nobody is pitching. The fundamental dynamic that defines Greek relationships in this sense is absent. So it's just not talked about. Like there is this sort of whole sort of like, there's this whole myth bound up with the island of Lesbos, which is where we get the term lesbians because there are all these women there who like don't have any men at all. And therefore all of their sexuality is woman to woman. And the Greeks are sort of like baffled by this. Like they don't know exactly what to make of it um, because it doesn't fit any of the categories that they typically understand. Um, but they recognize that it does happen. Um, like even with the Mayanads, which we talked about several weeks ago and which are very obvious in the stories of Thebes here, um, these are all these women who are hanging around the forest, presumably pleasuring each other as well as like tearing men apart and gang raping them and like eating their own children. Um, hooray, Mayanads! Um, presumably they're also having sex with each other, but the Greeks just, like, don't care. That's not cheating in this world. Like, if your wife sleeps with your concubine, you're cool with that. Like, who cares? Um, this is not a betrayal. You do not have an emotional investment in your wife that this would qualify as a betrayal. Um, rather, your emotional investment is in her as yours specifically, and no other men can penetrate her. If they do, that's a betrayal, that's a violation, and then things go to shit. Um, but as far as women sleeping with each other con is concerned, that's no harm, no foul. That's not sex, as far as the Greeks are concerned. Um, so this is roughly the state of Greek society at this point in time, like from the perspective of the Athenians, but also in, from the perspective of the Thebans and other cultures like going back further than this. Um, now, I've obviously spent, like, all of this time talking about Greek cultural mores and the history, and there's no time left to talk about Thebes or Athens and Theseus and so on. Um, so let me give you, like, the five-minute Cliff's Notes version of why I made you read Theseus especially. Um, what I wanted to drive home with the myths for today 
is how these cities identify themselves according to their mythic traditions. Um, and Theseus is probably the best example of this. Theseus is the sort of patron hero, the first major king who makes Athens, Athens. And notice the way that his story is told. So obviously his story is bound up with the story of Minos antagonizing Athens. Um, like you've got Minos and Pasiphae and the Minotaur and all of this really crazy shit that is admittedly fairly hard to parse out. But what I want to focus especially on is the fact that Minos basically invades Athens. Athens is forced under the circumstances to surrender their young children to Minos. Minos will take these kids, bring them back to Crete, and basically feed them to the Minotaur. This is tribute, but it is also a convenient way for Minos to keep his bastard son in check, or whatever the Minotaur actually is. Um, it's not entirely clear what Minos's motivations are at any point, but it's very clear that Minos and Crete are keeping Athens under their thumb. Now, Theseus is a fabled hero. Like, everyone knows that there is this, you know, son of Aegeus um, who is going to come back bearing the sword that bore Aegeus's symbol um, and, like, presumably do really awesome things because he comes from a noble family. Um, so Theseus, you'll notice, when he's, like, fighting his way back to Aegeus, he fights all of these different bad people. Um, like the dude who puts people in a bed that's too short for them and then like cuts their feet off if they're too tall or puts them in a bed too tall for them and then like stretches them out if they're not tall enough for it. Um, like, or the guy who wrestles everybody. Um, Theseus consistently overcomes all of these people who force other people to be something other than what they want to be. Notice the emphasis here because like literally all of the different monsters or you know murderers that theseus runs into here follow this form um they all like modify humans to be something other than they are um so if you look on page 349 you know he fights the clubman guy who kills people with his club um, you fights Sinus, the guy who bends the pines and then forces people to like try and bend them as well. And they like get flung up into the sky cartoon style. Um, he f slays the sow. Um, he slays Skyron, the Corinthian, who is the one who like forces people to wash his feet for them. Consistently, Theseus is overthrowing tyrants here. Um, Theseus is like mythically responsible for freeing people from expectations. Um, this is the consistent moral of how Theseus defeats people, which is very typically Athenian. Like think of the Spartans. They do force their citizens to be something that they may or may not be. If they are too weak, they're killed or they die in training. Everybody becomes a soldier to the Spartans. But in Athens, everybody becomes whatever they want to be. They become philosophers, or they become playwrights, or they become shipbuilders, or they become, like, tradesmen, or they become farmers, or whatever they want to do, they do. Largely because Theseus is the, like, hero of Athens, and he defeated all of these tyrants who made people do other things. And most importantly, Theseus is the one who breaks the control of Minos over Athens. 
Theseus is the one who slays the Minotaur and stops this system of tribute that has been taking place. Theseus is, in short, a liberator. All the parts of this myth emphasize that. Theseus consistently throughout this myth is liberating people. He liberates, like, Daedalus and Icarus from Minos' control. He liberates, you know, all of Athens from being controlled by Crete. Um, he liberates all of these individuals who are walking along the street who are getting harassed by people who, like, want them to be something other than they are. Um, all of this implies Theseus as a champion of individualism. But even more than that, you will notice that, you know, in Plutarch's life of Theseus, we get this secondary myth about where Theseus is himself posited as the inventor of democracy. Theseus is the one who goes around and, like, gets the nobles and the poor people and the tradesmen to all agree that they're going to do this one-vote system and everything will be, divide, div, like, decided by this committee, this demos, um, this one group of people. Theseus is sort of the founder of Athens in this sense. Now, there's a secondary story that we didn't read where Athens gets its name because it is patronized by Athena. Um, like the people of Athens, presumably after Theseus, are all deciding who they're going to name their town after. And the main, like, the main contenders are uh, uh, Athena and Poseidon. Um, and the Athenians, being very practical, say to at Athena and Poseidon, um, we will name this city after you if you can provide the best gift to benefit Athenians. And Poseidon's like, okay, easy peasy. And he strikes the ground and he makes a well for them. Um, so a well is good. Water is important. It helps you survive a th siege. And it obviously like keeps people from having to walk all over the place. But unfortunately, the downside is because Poseidon, it's a saltwater well. So that's not especially helpful. Um, however, Ath Athena, picking up on this, plants the first ever olive tree, which can grow in salt water. Um, so now Athens, which is like one of those coastal cities and has, you know, the ocean on all sides, can thrive because it has all of these plants that grow and produce something valuable in salt water. Um, so the fact that Athens has all this salt water around is no longer a downside. So they named the city Athens after Athena, and hooray, Athena is the patron deity of Athens, um, which probably explains why it is ends up being a hotbed of you know people who pursue wisdom, philosophy, and playwrights, and you know medicine and literature and so on. Um, so these two myths sort of conspire to make Athens what it sees itself as. Where Sparta is this military society rigorously structured, Athens sees Theseus as its founder, Theseus the liberator, and instead emphasizes individualism. Instead says to itself, everyone should have one vote because Theseus said so. Instead emphasizes wisdom and self-accomplishment rather than like involvement in the group, the society overall. That's what I want to drive home about this particular reading and these myths as related to the history. Um, the physical places, the real historical people and places see themselves as being part of this mythic tradition. Theseus is the progenitor of Athenian culture in addition to being sort of like the founder of Athens historically. Um, whether or not Theseus did in fact do all this stuff kind of doesn't matter at this point. 
Um, Theseus becomes a magnet. He sort of attracts these stories um, because Athens identifies Theseus with itself. And as Athens develops, Theseus changes as well. Um, that's what I really wanted to stress. And you will absolutely see the same thing in Thebes, although Thebes is way more complicated because there's all that like warring and infighting and like multiple different founders with different sort of like approaches to the city, as well as like three different regimes that transpire over the course of our reading. Um, but keep this in mind as we keep going forward, especially over the next two weeks. Um, as we are reading about the Greeks as like this sort of self-identified culture, um, in the next lecture, keep in mind what the Greeks see themselves as being based on their stories of the Trojan War and of the Odyssey. Um, when next week we change our attention to the Israelites and the Romans, see what they think of themselves. How do they identify themselves based on their founders, the, the heroes who sort of inform their societal assumptions, the gods who they claim as theirs, that's what will make a, like a nation or a city who they are. Athens identifies itself as a place of freedom, as a place of like intelligence and wisdom because of its mythic origins and its mythic origins reinforce their identity. Um, that's our theme for these next couple weeks, but we'll talk about that more in the next lecture.